This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 77 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Ursula Pike. In the mid-1990s, Ursula boarded a plane to Bolivia and began her term of service in the Peace Corps. A member of the Karuk tribe, Pike expected to make meaningful connections with other indigenous people, but her experiences forced her to question her assumptions about the world. Ursula wrote about her time in Bolivia in her new book, An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a Native Travel Memoir, which was published in 2021. We talk about identity, the Peace Corps, and neoliberalism in the context of her experiences. We also talk about revisiting old travel journals, truth in writing memoir, and more. But before we start the episode today, just a reminder to share the podcast with your friends on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Ursula Pike. Ursula, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So I invited you on to talk about your book, An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a native travel memoir, which recounts your experience in the Peace Corps during, I think, the mid-1990s in Bolivia. But I want to first ask you about the title of the book, because um, I think it's, it relates kind of to one of the most important themes of your book. So I'm curious to know if you could break down the title for us, explain your Indian background, who the indígenas are in this context, and how these terms might be different from, say, the other Spanish word, indio. Yes. Um, well, thank you for that, that question. Um, so I'm a member of the Keruk tribe, and our traditional homeland is in Northern California, or in the area near the Oregon-California border. And uh, I traveled to Bolivia, and Bolivia is the most indigenous country in South America. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the majority of the population is. And um, there's many tribes that are represented there. Um, the Aymara and the Quechua, who were the largest population in the area where I was. But there's also Guarani and like a hundred other tribes. And when I went to Bolivia, I assumed that I would have this connection with people. Um, with the indigenous population specifically. And that's not what happened. <laughs> it was much more uh, complicated than that. And, and the book tells the story of me spending two years trying to uh, build some connections with the, with the folks I, I work with. 
And actually, the title um, was inspired by a Dakota author from the 1920s. She, uh, her name was Zitkala Sa, and um, she wrote about living in, working at a Indian boarding school at the Carlisle Indian Boarding School, and just that complicated feeling that she had of being both a member of the population that was being served, as well as being one of the people serving them, and how she had a lot of her uh, assumptions about that work um, challenged, and ultimately she ended up leaving because she just felt it was too fraught of a experience. Of course, this was at an Indian boarding school in the 1920s um, and uh, a different experience than mine, but I definitely connected with with what she she wrote about and was really inspired. Mm-hmm. And as far as the title, you know, originally I did call it um, an Indian among Los Indios. And in 2018, I went back to Bolivia to the community that I had worked in and I was you know, working on the book and and talking to my Quechua friends about it. And um, when I would ask them about, All right, do you consider yourself an Indio? They would say, we really don't like that word. word. We, we prefer the word indígena. And uh, in the final revisions of my book, I was working with my editors and uh, they suggested, they said, you know, you want to think about that, that use of that word Los Indios. Mm. Um, and I agreed with them. I, I said, we, that would be great if we could call them what they want to be called, which is something I think is so important um, for me as a native person and just for any community. So we changed the name to mm. do that. Is, is that because the the term indio had something to do with um I, I guess had like a negative connotation of being backwards or kind of country bumpkin type connotation to it yes yeah. yes and still today um in in bolivia indio when people hear indio they definitely think of an uneducated person mm-hmm. from the rural area and women um i tell the story in the book about a woman who who specifically stopped wearing the traditional indigenous uh, clothes because she didn't want to look like an Indian because it has such negative connotations. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, these are some of the you know, conversations I want to have with you today about um, modernity and, and the Peace Corps and all of that stuff. Uh, but I want to kind of double click on something that you, you'd mentioned just a few moments ago. You'd, you'd mentioned that you um, I guess assume that you would assume that you would have had a connection uh, with the people of Bolivia because of this what you saw as like a shared identity, um, and, and that that was complicated uh, when you arrived there. But I was wondering, um, did you assume that you would have kind of like a connection because of the shared kind of perspective that uh, of, of being Native American, uh, or was it kind of a shared perspective of being a Native American and also being kind of subjugated by Westerners, essentially, in, in terms of history and culture. Right. Yes, I, I think it's both. I okay. mean, I think um, the reason why I had that assumption is because that's often my experience in the U.S. 
Uh, mm. Even though I'm from a tribe from Northern California, I grew up in uh, California, Oregon, and Washington State. And my mother and I, we were very involved with the different um, urban Indian communities. And I was uh, involved with people or, you know, planning powwows and having events with people from tribes all over the U.S. And, and I really developed this um, understanding that we were connected in a way or we had different um, perspectives based on our shared experience. Even, you know, even mm. though our experiences were completely different, they were some were people who had never lived on a reservation or, or people who had come just from the reservation. I mean, not that we saw everything exactly the same, but there, there were enough uh, similarities mm -hmm. to, to have a connection, at yeah. least a starting point for a connection. Sh shared experience. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what, what complicated that? That I was seen as a, a Westerner that, uh -huh. you know, I arrived on this flight with uh, 25 other people from the United States of various backgrounds. And that that's how I was seen um, both in the community uh, in Cochabamba, where we lived for three months through the training, and then in um, Cantuta, the community where I served for two years, that I was seen as an outsider. And, um, and I made this assumption that because of my identity, that they would see that in me, they would see something to connect with. Uh -huh. But I, I came to realize that that was something that I needed to do. You know, I just like any outsider who came into my indigenous community that, that I expected, I knew that they had to build trust and build a connection uh, regardless of their background. And so I need to, to do that as well. Yeah, identity is so interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, just wondering what that was like uh, for you to basically all your life, you know, view yourself in, in one way and, fly a few hours uh, south, as it were, and, you know, have people kind of reject that in a way or, or see you in a different way than than what than how you saw yourself. Uh, what was that sensation like? Um, it it was strange in that. Um, but it, it also related to something that a lot of people of color feel everywhere, which is this kind of double consciousness where you are experiencing the world, but then you're also watching how other people are looking at you and you understand that they're seeing you differently. Um, and, and so it was strange to me, but it was, um, it, it reminded me of some of the experiences that I had had in the U S of, of seeing the world through my eyes, but then also recognizing that someone was looking at me and, and seeing it at, seeing me differently. <laughs> yeah, the double consciousness you're referring to, I believe, was an idea by um, W.E.B. Du, uh, Dubois, who spoke about this in the African-American context. Um, my, my mother, she's, uh, she's Dominican, and like that side of the family is Dominican, and there's kind of an interesting <laughs> a correlation here. It's like many of the Dominicans are very dark, um, and you know, they don't, but they don't see themselves as black, you know, until they go to the United States and they're forced to put either white or, you know, something else on the, um, you know, on applications and things. And they're forced to see themselves in a different light or other people call them 
uh, black when they've never thought of themselves as uh, as black. Kind of interesting um, correlation there. Yes, yes, that is. And I, um, I remember uh, reading a journal article about that it, that Bolivian indigenous populations of Bolivia also were experienced that double consciousness. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the reason that my friend stopped that I mentioned earlier, stopped wearing traditional uh, clothing is because she knew how people saw her. And, you know, it's it's very interesting because actually in Bolivia, the percentage of the population claiming indigenous background on their census has increased. And it's not that there's more indigenous uh, folks. It's that um, with the election in 2008, I think, of their first indigenous president, Evo Morales, there was more acceptance and recognition of the importance of the indigenous history of the country. And um, there was more pride or, or willingness to claim it. And, and that, so that percentage has, has gone up. And, and so even in modern times, people's uh, understanding of their identity can, can switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, early in the book, you, you mentioned your fascination with travel literature and, and travel stories. And, but you also mentioned though, that you never really saw yourself in them that you were fascinated with them but there were kind of stories told by other people and it was nothing i guess personal if i can put words in your mouth um (laughs) uh, and you also said that there some of these stories were uh, one-dimensional with you know distorted depictions of non-white people so um did identity and representation motivate you to tell your your story here or um was it was there something else at play Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, I when I grew up, I remember reading books, even I remember some article in in Rolling Stone where the travel writer was talking about uh, women whose breasts look like melons and and just like the way he described, especially the women in the I think it was in Central America. It was like I was eager for that for the information about his experience. But then I was like, oh, this kind of gross. And, and who am I supposed to identify with here? This woman that he's um, othering, you know, and uh, and so, yeah, I when I came back from Bolivia, honestly, I every year would look for books about someone maybe who had had a similar experience, an African-American who'd served in Tanzania or something like that and and try and and see if there are other people who had similar experiences who had found a way to understand it. And, and I, I didn't find any. I mean, there are more and more books, um, travel books by people of color, but um, I didn't find anyone specifically addressing this experience of going overseas as like a do-gooder and having this complicated <laughs> experience. And, and so, yeah, I... I decided to to write it to, you know, do the thing that is the best thing about writing. It's helping you understand your own experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we should, um, I guess, pause here and, and talk about uh, a little bit the Peace Corps, which is the program that you went on, um, uh, that, that you belong to as you went to um, Bolivia. But so I, I guess to start, for those who don't know what the Peace Corps is, can you give us, I, I guess, an, an overview of, of the program and its like traditional narrative? Like, what, what is the Peace Corps? What, what does it symbolize? 
Right. Yeah. So the Peace Corps is a U.S. government um, volunteer opportunity. It right now there are no volunteers in the field, but um, they were all taken home in March of 2020, just like everybody else. And uh, but it has served. Um, I don't know, 100 countries, but uh, they they send American citizens overseas uh, to uh, do volunteer work, do development work in, in different areas. And they have training of uh, like three months of training in language and culture. And then you're sent out to a community to do work. Some people are in cities, too. And um, it's been going on since, uh, I don't know, they just, I think they had their 50th or 60th anniversary. Um, and, you know, it's traditionally definitely been uh, something that's been dominated by white, um, actually Ivy League uh, participants. And, um, but in the 1990s, actually Peace Corps recognized their lack of diversity and and started making an effort to recruit more diverse uh, volunteers. So um, and it's a great program, you know, for me as someone who graduated from college, wanting to travel, having student loans and really no resources. It was it was a great way for me to be able to go overseas and, you, you know, my I think my student loan payments were in deferment. You're allowed to defer your student loans while you're in Peace Corps and then you get an education award at the end. And, and just working um, with communities, doing doing all kinds of things from um, community sanitation projects to working in schools um, or building wells and things like that. Mm-hmm. What was your um, primary, I guess, duties and obligations when you were in Bolivia? Well, I, my project, I was in a group of volunteers working on micro enterprise with youth. So I worked at a children's home, um, where we had a workshop that made charangos, which are these 10 stringed, um, instruments that are um, often heard in Andean music, but the boys would mostly do that. The girls, it's not traditional thing for a girl to do. So I started a bakery project with the girls at this um, children's center and, and it had some success for a while, Uh, but mostly I, I worked in whatever they needed me to do at this children's center. I did a lot of tutoring and, uh, other community projects. Mm-hmm. Micro enterprise with youth. <laughs> I can I can see how this type of work would be uh, beneficial to like you know build skills and um, you know money management and business skills and all of that stuff. But there's also you know a criticism of these programs. Perhaps um, we can talk about. And the criticism is that, um, from what I understand, uh, is that. While good, while some of these programs are good, building wells for uh, local communities who need water, and that's without a doubt, that's a, a positive thing. But some of these economic practices might be 
heavy-handed neoliberalism or kind of forcing a Western economic model onto other people. I was wondering um, if, if you know anything about these criticisms and if, if you had any experiences with living through those critiques while you were working in, in Bolivia. Yes, yes. Um, I actually had many of those concerns myself mm-hmm. or, or had read many of the, the critiques of, of Peace Corps before I went. Uh, I saw Noam Chomsky give a lecture in which he called Peace Corps the peaceful wing of the State Department. <laughs> and I had read other criticisms that said, you know, really, it's just trying to it's like an advertisement for the U.S. And and I understood that that could be true. But my hope was, well, when I get there, maybe my presence can can be different. I can do something different. and. Um, and I did, though, sometimes feel that the assumption was you sometimes this was stated not explicitly, but almost uh, that as as volunteers from the United States, we had knowledge just because we grew up in the greatest country in the world. And and so we could help these people who we can help them become more like us. We can help them implement projects that are uh, like what we have in the United States. And, you know, one, one thing that I just have thought so much since coming back is the majority of the volunteers were like me, fresh out of college, really with no experience beyond, you know, what college jobs that we had and, and what kind of expertise were we bringing? I, I met a Dutch engineer who was working there with a community um, organization. And I was so struck by the fact that he had years of experience working in water projects and had real knowledge, technical knowledge that he was bringing. Whereas for me and, and most of the other volunteers, we, we weren't bringing that. And, um, and so it did sometimes feel like we were just, I don't know, but foreign exchange students or something <laughs> like that. And, um, but yes, there were some projects that, that were not harmful, (laughs) that were, that were good. That was, you know, helping get funding for a well and, and, and other business projects. But the thing that, that bothered me was that assumption that we, what we had in the U.S. was the default was the way things should be done. Mm-hmm. And, and the best thing we could do is to help Bolivians become more like, like us. us. Right. And that's one of the, 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 um, I guess one of the, the plot points or the storylines uh, that, that you'd mentioned earlier, about your friend uh, wearing the traditional Cholita dress and how she wanted to cast that aside. And from what I recall, um, you know, this was a conversation you had with her as a result of some, kind of economic initiative or, or she not wanting to look the part of uh she wanted to 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 be more modern essentially and and cast those aside um and, and of course that's part of the tension uh between modernity um economic progress and also preserving traditional cultures and uh you know that's 
I guess, for, in, informing some of the tension throughout throughout the story. Yes, and I saw that it repeated again and again, where um, generations of like from a grandmother to a mother to a granddaughter, maybe the the granddaughter would have more economic opportunities or was able to go to college, but she didn't speak the tradition. She didn't mm. speak Quechua anymore. She definitely didn't wear traditional attire anymore. Um, and seeing those different generations interact and recognizing the, the choices that were made um, or that, you know, were presented to, especially to the indigenous women was um, troubling. And, and also though, I, I really felt a, a connection to experiences that my own family had had. My grandmother left um, Northern California and moved to San Francisco to work as a maid in her twenties. And, and she stayed in the Bay area for her entire life. And she had different opportunities that her brothers and sisters who had stayed there that we visited frequently, but she had different opportunities. And, but it always just felt like this choice that she had had to make um, for her economic survival and, and that of her children and grandchildren. So it, it's a, it's, it, I, it makes me wish that there were, or look, look for development models, ways of empowering people or ways of supporting people that doesn't erase, doesn't force them to walk away from their tradition or their culture that incorporates that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, if you had been, if you've been back to Bolivia since, uh, there's a new president, uh, Evo, Evo Morales is, is no longer there. Um, and perhaps if there has been kind of decline or perhaps a persistence of this acceptance of traditional identity. Um, do you have any, any, any sense of that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I, I was able to have conversations with people when I went, I've been back a few times and most mm. recently in 2018 and, and I was able to have conversations with Bolivians that I knew and others that I, I had just met. And, and to be honest, when I was there in the nineties, I wouldn't have had either the vocabulary or maybe um, the courage to ask questions about identity and, mm -hmm. and how people saw themselves. And, but I was able to, to ask people, uh, you know, how do they think of themselves? Do they think of themselves as Quechua or Aymara? And I was fascinated to discover that people would say different answers. Some people would say, no, I'm, I'm mestizo. I'm, and then someone else who had basically the same background would say, no, I'm Quechua. And, um, so I, I think that specifically because of Evo's experience, but also, you know, just a uh, more of a worldwide acknowledgement of indigenous people that, that there was a more willingness to to discuss that or to think of themselves, to not be embarrassed to, to claim indigeneity, you know, as part of their identity. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's good. You'd mentioned that you, um, back in the nineties, you didn't necessarily had all the 
the tools and the toolkit to engage uh, folks about their identity and whatnot. But um, as you're sitting down to to write this memoir, some I don't know, 20, 30 years after the fact, you did have um, a rich trove of documents, your journals um, that that you wrote down while you were there. So I think somewhere in the in the, in the book you'd mentioned that when you arrived at your town or your village, um, your mother or a family member sent you like these a stack of like six journals or something um, for you to, to fill up uh, during your, your experiences. Um, so what was that? What was that like kind of revisiting those journals after so many years? And what was it like trying to make sense of all of that? Oh, it was excruciating. <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> Uh, there's some really uh, horrible stuff in those journals, <laughs> both the writing and the topics. Um, and some but, of those stories came out in the book, by the way. We won't reveal it right now, but there's some juicy, <laughs> yes. some juicy stuff there. Yes, and I, uh, you know, they're my journals, so I didn't hold anything back. No, um, yeah, I, you know, those it, it, that was tough. That was taking those journals and. And trying to take what was in there and and turn it into a narrative that was engaging and kind of made sense. Um, and sometimes I would be reading them and kind of get lost and like, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot about this. But sometimes I would find these nuggets of um, interactions with people that I had completely forgotten about that. I thought, oh, my gosh, this makes that point that I've been trying to make about uh, something. And, and so I need to include this. And it was, it was really helpful. Um, but it was, it was tough to, to revisit my younger self and, and think about choices that I made then. And, and to see times that I wasn't even being honest with myself about what was going on. You know, when I'm writing, like I said, I'm writing primarily first for myself to kind of understand the experience and and the only way is to be absolutely truthful about my own motivations or thoughts and and mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you teach creative writing uh at a school in um Austin, Texas. So I I guess maybe just to to close us out here, wondering if you can give us a little uh writing tip, a nugget um maybe related to travel writing, travel literature or you know, memoir, do you have any, what, what do you tell your students? What are, what are their biggest, I guess, struggles with uh, creative writing that you have to go back to every semester and, and, and remind them? Well, I think particularly with memoir, one thing that a lot of students struggle with is writing about truth that they don't necessarily remember every single detail about. Uh, and I especially some students I notice who come from maybe a journalism background uh, they, and they now want to write memoir. I, I just tell them that you, it's, it's okay to let the reader know that maybe not every detail is exactly as you remember it. And, and there are, there are, you can say, perhaps he said this, or, you know, that, that readers understand that that memory can be somewhat um, imprecise, and that it's you can put your recollection as best you remember it. Not don't, don't make anything up, but 
but put down what you remember and and then you can build on that. And and I think that um, it's okay to tell your story. I think part of that is just people are afraid that they'll that someone will say, oh, that's not true. And it's okay though for you to tell your version of events and and how that happened, how they happened. Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking oh, that's a great advice, by the way. But I'm I'm also thinking here about uh, the fact that uh, you you intentionally called the town a different name to uh, is protect the identities of the people that you're writing about, and I guess that deliberate uh, fudging the truth is is also uh, I guess okay in the context of, of of memoir to protect others but also to protect yourself in terms of legal legal issues yeah and and i think one really important thing is is to communicate that to readers i put that in mm-hmm. my introduction at the beginning of the book and said this is how i approach writing about things that happen to me so i and i encourage any of my students to to let their readers know that especially at at a book link in a book link uh, work very good information there ursula uh thank you so much for your time and coming on the pod- podcast to speak with me about your book um well, i wish you like really uh wish you success with this book it came out i believe a few months ago when did it come out late 2021 it came out in april, april yeah okay. Uh, of 2021 so yeah and i've gotten um so many people have been interested in it people with different backgrounds who served or didn't serve it's been interesting to me that different people who it it has struck a chord with so thank you so much i i really enjoyed this conversation you can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. 